0: Hey, good morning, everyone. So good to see you here in the House of God in Willerton. Good morning if you're watching online. And I want to give a shout-out to my special friends at City Campus. Thanks for having me there for the last 18 months. You guys are awesome. One of the most welcoming communities I've been a part of. And if you're watching online and you have no church to go to, go to City Campus. (laughs) Now... I have to admit that the last few weeks of uh, listening to sermons on Amos has been really challenging for me. I, I don't know if it's been challenging for you. It's been challenging in the sense that it's caused me to reflect much about what it means to be a disciple of Christ. It's actually forcing me to ask those questions such as, are we truly disciples of Christ if we don't stand with God on the things that matter the most to Him? The poor, the widows, the orphans, and the refugees. It's been challenging for me because I'm a worship leader in this church and as we heard last Sunday, God has some really strong things to say about the singing of our songs and the music that we play if we also don't let justice roll like a river. And it's even more challenging for me as a lawyer because I'm in the profession that's supposed to be administering justice. And I feel like God is challenging me about whether I'm truly seeking justice through my work or whether I'm just doing my work to pay the mortgage. And I think I can only say that at this point in my journey through Amos, my sense is that God is calling me and God is calling us as a church to play our part in bringing justice to our world. And in this passage we're gonna look at today, we're gonna see two movements. The first movement has to do with intercessory prayer, intercessory prayer. And the second movement, the main picture is that of a plumb line, which signifies God's, uh, God's standards for righteousness and justice in the world. And I want to suggest today that in seeking to do justice in our world, we have to start with prayer. We have to start with prayer. And so the thought that I'm going to share f- uh, with you today from the book of Amos is Prayer That Transforms, Prayer That Transforms. So that's the title of this message. Another title, title could be Petitions and the Plumb Line or another title could be the Confessions of a Middle-Aged Evangelical Asian Man who just wants to live a comfortable life. Uh, you'll see why I say that towards the end. So let's uh, go to the text in Amos chapter 7, verse 1 to 9. So if you got it, it's Amos chapter 7, verse 1 to 9. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested. And just as the late crops were coming up, when they stripped the land clean, I cried out, sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He's so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, Look, I'm setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. And with my sword, I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam. So that's the passage. And from this passage, I want to share with you three things as we look at how we can stand with God in doing justice. The first thing is, prayer that transforms our world. The second thing is prayer that transforms our hearts. And third, the source of transformation. So prayer that transforms our world, prayer that transforms our hearts, and then the source of that transformation. Firstly, prayer that transforms our world. Up to this point, Amos has shown Israel how far they've gone from God in their political, social, and religious life. And so God began to show Amos what could happen to Israel if they kept persisting in their ways. And the first image is that of a locust swarm. Now, when we think about locusts, um, we don't really have a paradigm to think about them because we don't really get swarms of locusts in this part of the world. The closest we can equate it to is probably a grasshopper. And I occasionally get visited by grasshoppers in my garden, and one or two here or there, they're pretty gross. But they don't really threaten my life or my garden. A locust swarm can actually cover 1,200 square kilometres and pack between 40 and 80 million locusts in a square kilometre. So if you think about the magnitude of that, a swarm of locusts can actually consume 190,000 tonnes of plants every day. And to put that into context, National Geographic says a swarm the size of Paris can eat the same amount of food in one day as half the population of France. So that's a lot of croissants. <laughs> and within a short period of time, what this really means is that the whole food source of Israel would be decimated. Now, we can't really imagine that either. And probably the closest we could get to was the COVID-19 lockdowns when you couldn't get out and buy food. And if you did, all the shelves were cleaned out of pasta and rice. And so you sort of fit, sit there and think, oh, what would it be like to be without food for a week or two? But here, the picture is being without food for an entire year until the harvest cycle began again. So it is something which is completely unfathomable unfathomable to us. You'll see that the locusts would come up after the king's share had been harvested and just as the second crop was coming up. And what that meant was, in in ancient Israel, the king always took the first harvest. So there was two harvests in a year and the king took the first one as tax. The second harvest was the one the people got to keep. And I think what God is saying here is that the injustices that were being committed in Israel were not just by the officials, the government, and the institutions as much as they were responsible for administering justice, but also by every individual in the nation. They were consumed with a self-serving attitude, an insatiable desire to get more wealth, a disregard for the poor. And this had permeated the lives of every individual in Israel. Ah, the mic's popping, isn't it? Thanks. All right. So that's the first image. The second image is of judgment by fire, which dries up the great deep and devours the land. And the word here means a volcanic, a volcanic eruption uh, that, where fire would flow over the land. It devours the rock underneath the topsoil and destroys all the built structures. And Israel was actually surrounded by volcanic areas. So that this was actually a geographic possibility. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed in this way. And when this happens, you have no choice but to evacuate. God was saying that the landscape was about to change forever. Our cities would be destroyed and the land was going to convulse and spit Israel out. So in light of those two pictures, what was Amos' reaction? He knew that Israel deserved God's judgment. The only thing that Amos could do was to plead with God in intercession. And he said, Sovereign Lord, forgive Have mercy because Jacob is too small, he won't survive. And in both these instances, it says the Lord repented or changed his mind. Now here's the point. A person who's prepared to denounce his nation must be a person who's also prepared to weep and plead for mercy for his nation. When we hear of moral decay, wars and killing of innocent lives, human rights violations, worker exploitation, human trafficking, Aboriginal disadvantage, the widening gap between the rich and the poor, the rising cost of living. Or maybe on a micro level, you see um, someone at school who's being bullied, or a friend or an acquaintance you have who's struggling to pay their rent. The question is, have we paused to pray? Have we paused to pray? And maybe the reason we feel strongly about certain things that we hear about is because it's not that God is wanting us to complain about it, but maybe because He wants us to pray about it. The revivalist Leonard Ravenhill said this, Poverty-stricken, as the church is today in many things, she is most stricken here in the place of prayer. We have many organisers, but few agonizers. Many players and payers, but few prayers. Many singers, few clingers. Lots of pastors, few wrestlers. Many fears, few tears. Much fashion, little passion. Many interferers, few intercessors. Many writers, but few fighters. Failing here, we fail everywhere. Unfortunately and I'm talking about myself, prayer is not a default setting for us. It's easy to organize things, raise funds, run events, hold talks, work ourselves up with fear and anxiety rather than to pray. And Ravenhill says that if we fail here in the place of prayer, we will fail everywhere. If there's a cause for justice in the world, then it must begin in prayer. And you know, the Bible is full of examples of how the power of prayer has an effect on the affairs of history. James 5.17 says, Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. In one sense, God is always in control of everything, isn't he? So it'd be wrong to say that Elijah somehow controlled the weather through prayer. And yet, it is also a part of God's goodness and His grace that He would call us and allow us uh, to affect the world through our prayer, to, to allow us to partner with Him in seeing His will being done on earth. I would dare say that every great move of God in history has been, has, that has resulted in the transformation of society has been preceded by prayer. Every great move of God has been preceded by prayer. In the Welsh revival of 1904, um, the leader of that revival, Evan Roberts, began a life of prayer when he was only 13 years old. And he would wake up at 1 a.m. and pray for four hours every day for God to fill him and to fill his nation. He prayed fervently for Wales for 15 years before revival came. That impacted the Welsh society profoundly. One reporter said that communities were turned upside down and radically changed from depravity to glorious goodness. 150,000 people were gloriously converted in six months, particularly amongst the poor and the outcast. William Seymour, the leader of the Azusa Street revival in 1906, was known for preaching uh, in, from a pulpit that was made up of two box crates. And for periods of time, extended periods of time, he, instead of preaching, he would have his head inside the top crate, just praying for God to move. And the result was a revival in which it was said that the colour line, that racial divide between white and black, was washed away in the blood of Jesus. Rich and poor, masters and slaves, came together in the brotherhood of Christian community. The Salvation Army was a work of God that was birthed through fervent prayer. When the church had become more formalised through Victorian society, and the poor were being kept out of the church, William Booth began to minister to the poor and the destitute. And by the time of his death, he had established the work of the Salvation Army in 58 countries. And today, his legacy of ministering to the poor and needy still lives on. I remember going on a short-term mission trip in 1997 for the first time. And um, I've never been on a short-term mission trip before, so I really needed a gentle introduction. And so, that meant not going to places like Africa, or even East Timor, because uh, a good toilet and running water were prerequisites. So, I went to Singapore, <laughs> 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 nah, not Orchard Road, okay, that was after the mission trip, but we went to a place in Singapore called Yishun in the north of the island. And Yishun is actually reported to be one of the second poorest socioeconomic areas in Singapore. And on that mission trip was where I met a skinny young preacher by the name of Benny Ho. (laughs) And I think some of you in this room were in that mission trip as well, or you were partnering with Pastor Benny in the church. And what had happened then was Pastor Benny had uh, been planted out of Hinghua Methodist Church, which probably was in a more affluent area of Singapore, to pioneer the English congregation of Yishun Methodist Mission. And one of the things he started to do was to um, do a work in the community of serving them with no strings attached. So it was a pioneering work of servant evangelism to meet the needs of the community where they were at. And I believe that that work was actually birthed through deep prayer. And so as a team, when we went, we were constantly prayer walking the community. And I remember one time when we were about to go out as a team to distribute fruit to the housing estates around the area, Pastor Benny's worship leader tapped me on the shoulder and said, oh Lester, you you don't go, stay back with me, and we're going to plan for a prayer meeting. And I have to say I was a bit disappointed because I was, really going on this trip because it was uni break and my friends were going and I just wanted to hang out with them. So, so I kind of moped a bit and I went, okay. And we went there and we started praying and worshipping together and we started planning for the worship for when the, the team came back. And I will never forget that prayer meeting. Um, Pastor Carving was there. He'll remember that too. As we worshipped and prayed for the community, the presence of God showed up in such a powerful way and prophetic words began to be released about the heart of God for the community. And one girl just began weeping, weeping, weeping and saying how much God loved the people around us. And before we knew it, all of us were in tears on the floor and God's heart for the lost and the poor were touching us. A few years later, I went back to Yishun on holidays and I visited the church. And one of the leaders came up to me and said, wow, you know, since those pioneering days when you came, the church has now grown such that half the congregation or more than half the congregation were actually converts from the local community. You see, that's a work that is birthed in prayer. And it is clear that the intercession of God's people matter. We are called to partner with God in transforming our world. And it begins with prayer. Secondly, prayer that transforms our hearts. My second point is related to the first. Because as we're called to intercessory prayer, not only will we see that our prayers will change history, but that ultimately through our prayer, God will change us. See, we're not only called to pray your kingdom come, we're also called to pray your will be done, not my will be done. And I want you to notice how in this passage, Amos addresses God. He says in verse one, this is what the sovereign Lord showed me. And when God warns of coming judgment, Amos says, sovereign Lord have mercy. And six times in six verses throughout the first first part of this passage, God is addressed as the sovereign Lord. How does this inform our understanding of prayer? Well, firstly, we must recognise that the sovereignty of God is in the affairs of the world. He is a mighty God who rules and controls everything, and if He's sovereign, it means He does what He wants. And yet, He invites us into partnering with Him so that our prayer might change history. You see, if we believe that God was in charge and our actions meant nothing, it will lead us to passively sit back and do nothing. But if we believe that our actions alone can change God's plan, I think we'll be a bit paralysed by fear at the magnitude of what our prayers can actually achieve. But if we hold God's sovereignty and our action intention, this gives us the incentive for diligent effort and yet trusting that God's good plans will prevail. And ultimately, our response to God's sovereignty must be to then bow our will and our hearts to His control and His desires so that through prayer, our hearts will ultimately resonate with His heart. E. Stanley Jones says this about prayer. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is cooperating with His highest willingness. It's not overcoming His reluctance. It's cooperating with His highest willingness. Willingness. We cooperate with Him most when we are surrendered to His sovereignty. Timothy, Timothy Keller says, though prayer is a kind of artillery that changes the circumstances of the world, it is as much or even more about changing our own understanding and attitude towards those circumstances. You see, the problem of justice doesn't start with government policy corruption, a broken system, it actually starts with us. And my heart towards the poor in Yeshun began to, to change when I, when I encountered God's heart through prayer. And you think about the things that Amos was denouncing in Israel, the lack of concern for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the refugee, I wonder how many of us would readily identify with these groups. If Israel's problem was the widening gap between the rich and the poor and the rich getting more prosperous and powerful and enjoying newfound luxuries and holiday homes like Dave shared with us at the beginning of the series, I wonder how many of us would much rather identify with the rich and the wealthy. And I'll be the first to admit that I like luxury goods and I wouldn't mind a holiday home. Recently, um, my 2017, uh, 2007 car, um, which I've had for many, many years, uh, started to have the engine light go off. And it's a bit dangerous when you're driving around with the engine light off because you never know when it's going to cack it and die. Um, I said to my mechanic, can you please fix this for me? And he said, if I fix it, it costs more than the value of your car. So, <laughs> so I had no option but to start looking for a new car. And my mind immediately went to what's a nice, luxurious, European car that I can afford? Um, So I wasn't going to spend a lot of money, but I started test driving a few cars and I ended up in a Volvo SUV. And man, when you sit on those chairs in the Volvo, it feels like you're sitting in your lounge at home. They were that comfortable. And so, I really wanted to get a Volvo. Um, and maybe it was a status symbol sort of thing, you know, something a bit different to everyone else. But my wife didn't seem to agree. And so she said to me, Lester, pray about it. <laughs> and so the next morning I sat on the couch, head bowed toward my phone, flicking through car sales.com, <laughs> looking at European cars, Well, if not a Volvo, maybe an Alfa Romeo or a Jaguar would do. (laughs) And then a few days later, my wife said, have you prayed about it yet? Now, men, how many of you know that when we say we're going to do something, we're going to do it? You don't have to remind us every six months, okay? (laughs) And so eventually, I started to pray about it. And I kind of feel what Jacob feels when he wrestles with God in prayer. And in the midst of praying about what car I should be getting, the Lord started started to challenge my motives. Um, Especially in this context when we've just been going through the book of Amos, where God was denouncing Israel about his pursuits of luxuries while ignoring the plight of the poor. And so questions that sounded like my wife, but I'm sure it was the Lord, saying, why do you need a European car? Are you stewarding your finances properly? Uh, Volvos are unreliable, the parts are very expensive, the servicing is expensive. Um, what's wrong with the Toyota? Aren't they cheaper, more reliable? And I'm thinking, Lord, but they're not beautiful. <laughs> they're not beautiful like a Volvo. And after wrestling with God, I felt that he had put his finger on an area of pride in my life. And so, I finally decided to buy a Toyota. (laughs) So watch this space. But until then, Instagram lurks like a serpent, constantly showing me me feeds of beautiful Volvos on sale. (laughs) I'm not sure how it decided to do that, but it knows. Now... I'm not saying it's wrong to have a European car for many of you who have one, lest you try to run me down your BMW with a car back later. <laughs> I'm just making the point that for me, slowly but surely, prayer was changing me. I'm beginning to get more of the heart of God, not my will, but His will be done. And as we pray to our sovereign Lord, I think he's gonna slowly bend our will to his as well. As Timothy Keller says, he's causing our attitude and our understanding towards our circumstances to change. And today we're struggling as a person who wants to do justice. The easiest step for us is, is to begin by praying for justice and mercy and see if prayer doesn't transform you too. So we have looked at prayer that transforms our world and pray that transforms us. Lastly, I want to look at the source of that transformation. The source of the transformation. Verse seventy-nine says, This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, What do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, Look, I'm setting a plumb line among my people Israel, I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword I will rise against the house of Jeroboam." See, this last image of God's warning is the plumb line. And the plumb line is a heavy piece of metal, originally lead, shaped to a point, and then you hang a string or a line with the lead at the end. And plumb is actually named after the uh, Latin word for lead. And a plumb line points to the center of gravity so that you can determine whether something is upright. More specifically, wh- whether a wall is upright, even if it is not perpendicular to the ground. Because you might build a wall perpendicular to the ground, but if the ground is sloping, then the wall is also on a slope. The the, the ground might be a standard, but it is not the ultimate standard. So what is the ultimate standard? The plumb line is God's laws, particularly as it comes to doing justice in this context. And Romans 3.20 in the Phillips translation says this, no man can justify himself before God by a perfect performance of the law's demand. Indeed, it is the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. God was saying to Israel, you were built, you were a wall built through the plumb. But now when I set the plumb line, the wall is no longer straight. It has become crooked. And in verse verse 9, God's saying, He would destroy the high places of Israel. And these were the places that were set up for the worship of idols. And all the things that came with that, it meant that it was the epitome of man's most perverted pursuits and desires and sensuous enjoyments. And God was really saying, I was going to destroy the nation's leisure and social life. He says He would destroy the sanctuaries of Israel. That is the center of their religious life. Because Israel was just going through the religious motions, singing songs, playing music, and those weren't accompanied by their breaking of the chains of the the oppressed. He would rise up against the royal family, that is the nation's governmental life, because they'd become corrupted. They exploited the poor in the pursuit of wealth and power. They did not measure up to God's plumb line. And I wonder if the plumb line was set against our lives, against our church, would we be found to be upright? Or would it show to varying degrees that we were no longer aligned with Him? If we believe that God desires justice, the question then is, what gives us the power to do the works of transformative justice in our society or community? You see, it can't be guilt, because guilt might motivate us to do something for a while, but that weight of guilt will never be, it will never do enough, and that weight of guilt will ultimately cripple us. It can't be self interest, because if we do justice just to feel good about ourselves, that sense of feeling good might last for the first few times. It might last for a year or two years, but eventually that feeling will die as well as things become routine. Nor is it a matter of getting the government policy and the social machinery right. Beatrice Webb, who was one of the policy designers of the British welfare state, um, actually used social engineering in a way to help, to actually cause the government to look after the poor. So Britain was one of the first nations that started having the government look after the poor. And some of that social machinery that came in place was such as a statutory minimum wage, pension for those over 70, family allowances, unemployment benefits. Uh, We still have a lot of that today, but here's what she concluded after looking back to see the effectiveness of that policy. She says this, somewhere in my diary around 1890, I wrote, I have staked all on the essential goodness of human nature. Now, 35 years later, I realise how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts of man, how little you can count on changing some of these, for instance, the appeal of wealth and power, by any change in the social machinery. No amount of knowledge or science will be of any avail unless we can curb the bad impulse in the human heart. Now there's nothing wrong with advocacy and changing the law because some of us are involved in that space. These things can bring equity. But I often say to people, we want, if you want more laws to align with the Bible, did you know that we already have a nation whose laws are completely aligned with the Bibles? In fact, their laws were given by God himself. The very nation that we're talking about today, ancient Israel, the laws of God were not enough to arrest the corruption in the hearts of the people. Because you see, the kingdom of God is not a political kingdom. The kingdom of God has to come in the heart of every person and bring transformation from the inside out. How do we curb the bad impulse of the human heart? How can we get a heart to do justice? If we go to Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16 to 17, it says this, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be struck with panic or never be put to shame. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge. The lie which they had believed that, you know, as Israel, no harm would come our way because we're God's people. I will sweep away the lie." and water will overflow your hiding place. You see, Israel had believed that just because they were God's chosen people, they would be spared. And God said he would sweep them away because they failed to live up to the measure. But here's the promise, and you see, at the start of this passage, there is a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, that if we rely on it, we will never be put to shame. And that precious cornerstone is Jesus He was the one who was perfectly upright. He was the cornerstone perfectly set against the plumb line so that whatever is built on Him will remain upright. He was the one who was able to live out every righteous requirement of the law. He was the one who lived a perfectly just life. And not only that, at the cross, He took on the ultimate injustice of bearing our punishment, so that we could be justified. He bore our condemnation that we deserve so that we could unfairly receive the vindication that He deserved. And that's why we have to come to Him, our precious cornerstone. If we build our lives on that solid foundation, on Christ's work on the cross, we will be found upright. And this alone can curb the bad impulses of our human heart. And not only will we be found righteous before Him, we will also be empowered to live a life of righteousness and justice. So as we come to Jesus, this is where we can truly experience the the power of prayer that transforms. The power of prayer that transforms our society and our lives. Amen. Okay, today as I close, I want to pray for two groups of people. Um, The first group of people is, maybe you're new to the church and you're exploring the Christian faith. Uh, Maybe you've come through Alpha and you've been wondering, what is church about? Well, I want you to know that we have a God who still stands with the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. I think it's something which is not often talked about in church circles, and we need to really understand that this is the heart of God. You see, there's never been any religion quite like this. In the ancient cultures, the gods were always standing with the rich and powerful. Because if you believe that um, blessings and riches were coming from the gods, that was a sign of the gods' approval. And then therefore, poverty and weakness must be a sign that the gods were not with you. But this God of Israel was the complete opposite. He sided with the poor, the powerless, and the outcast. In a society that was male-dominated, he sided with the widow, the poor woman. In a tribal world, he actually says, I stand on the side of the racial outsider. There's no religion in the world quite like this one. And this God lifts those who are broken He doesn't wait for them to get their act together. He doesn't wait for them to live righteously. But even before any of that could happen, He died on the cross for us. So today, if you think, I can stand with a God like that. I can live for a God like that. And I want to see what it's like to give my life to a God like that. Right where you are, would you quickly slip up your hand so that we can pray for you? So if you're exploring the faith and you're thinking, this is an amazing kind of God. I want to be on His side. Would you quickly slip up your hand and then I can pray for you. Is there anyone in the room? Okay, that's okay. Now, for the rest of the church, this is really my prophetic burden for today. As I've been listening to um, these messages on the book of Acts and even preparing for today, I've been doing quite a lot of soul-searching. And I know this doesn't apply to all of us because there's some of you who are really deeply committed to doing justice and you're involved in feeding the poor and looking after the, um, the widows and the orphans and the immigrants. And if that's you, thank you for leading us and keep going with greater fervour. But for the rest of us, I feel like as a church, we are at risk of becoming something like ancient Israel in the days of Amos. And I think about, you know, the big beautiful building that we have, um, the fancy LED screen behind me, the, lo- the, the programs that we run that get us engaged amongst one another. We have barista coffee outside. Um, we have an awesome sound system. We have a great music team. And then some Sundays we come to a gathering like this and we're more concerned about getting a good parking spot in the shade, or whether we get to sit in our favourite seat, or whether the ushers will let me sneak in my coffee into the auditorium. And sometimes I feel like we become consumers of the Bible and of good preaching to feed our head knowledge so that the people will be impressed with our ability to recite Scripture. Um, I'm, I'm talking about myself here too. And I think about what people say about our church. is like, oh, that big church on South Street. Or, oh, I hear that preaching is great. Wow, you guys get to listen to Pastor Benny every week. Or, the music team is awesome. I like that one. But do they say that FCC is known for helping the poor, the widow, the orphans and the refugees? Because if that is what... God is known for? Shouldn't His church be also known for the same thing? And maybe we haven't oppressed the poor or exploited the vulnerable, but we've ignored their plight. We've turned a deaf ear to their cries. And maybe the problem is that we're aspiring for greater comfort, more luxuries, a holiday home, rather than having to bend low to serve the needy in our community. And again, I'm talking about myself. You know, for a long time, I've thought of myself as a church specialist. Um, Don't don't ask me to do anything in this church. I know what my calling is. I'm I'm a worship leader. I've known that since I was 15 years old. And so I can stand on this platform, lead worship week in, week out, saying my role in this church is to facilitate an atmosphere where you can be transformed. And then you can go out and do the work of ministry. You can go out and feed the poor and do the works of justice. And so I think God is challenging me about that too. And you know, I think the starting point for us is prayer. As I've been sharing today, the starting point is prayer. Because I'm not asking you to respond by going out and starting a program straight away or setting up a charity. Because those things will never last if it's not birthed out of a place of prayer. So today, can I just invite you to stand? And I believe the Spirit of God is stirring that in in some of us today. If you feel that God is really speaking to you about doing the works of justice, and maybe you've identified some bad impulses of your heart, how do we curb them? Well, it's in the place of prayer. And if you feel challenged by that, I'm not asking you again to start anything. I'm not asking you to go out and feed the poor right now. But I wanna encourage you, if you feel like God is speaking to you, what I want us to start with is prayer, that's it. God, make me a person who's prepared to pray for what's going on in our schools, for what's going on in our city, for what's going on in the nations of the world. And if that's you, I wanna encourage you to quickly come up to the front And then we're going to have a time of prayer that God will deal with us first to change and move in our hearts as we sing this song in a moment. You come. And I'm just gonna pray for us right now. Father God, we thank you for the challenge that you've given us through the book of Amos. You've raised the plumb line against us and we're examining ourselves to see if we're true to plumb. And Father, there are many of us today, we feel that we're not true to plumb. We have sought the luxuries of life at the expense of the poor. We have sought to feather our own nests. We've sought to, to be a church that is, is beautiful and big and, and impactful. But Lord, we haven't been known as a church that looks after the poor, the needy, the homeless, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants. Lord, forgive us of that. This morning, would you convict our hearts again to do what it, to be a people who will do the works of justice because you stand with the poor, the widow, the orphans, and the immigrants. So we want to stand with the poor, the widow, the orphans, and the immigrants. This is our cry. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.